Welcome to the Lamaze Podcast. Kalosirtate sto Lamaze Podcast. Welcome to the Lamaze Podcast. Okay, so here we are today with the lovely, wonderful Supergirl crush I have on Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens. She is phenomenal as an author, as a writer, all of the things that she's doing to bring about the education and awareness of reproductive health when it affects Black women. I had an opportunity to really get into listening to her speak. Agent Song had actually a wonderful engagement and they had her speak and it was just absolutely phenomenal. And I was just so, so grateful for that to hear her speak. And then I went ahead and I got her book. So we're going to be doing some really great conversation here today with Dr. Cooper Owens and just really find out what is it like to do this work that she's doing, because it is the opposite end of the spectrum. Telling the stories, bringing forward the stories, bringing the history forward that many people simply aren't aware of. Dr. Cooper Owens, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really pleased to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to jump right in. You have this very interesting PhD. I I want you to tell our listeners about your degree. Sure. I'm so glad you used the adjective interesting because I promise you most folk who hold a PhD in history don't think it's all that interesting because (laughs) the work is, is very lonely. But I will say the PhD in history that I have, I received it in 2008 from UCLA, allows me to really dig in the weeds and reveal some of the histories and stories and experiences of my ancestors. I mean, quite literally my ancestors. So having a PhD in history allows me to talk about Black women in the past and talk about enslaved women and to really think about the past and interpret it in ways where I've centered their lives and their experiences. And so that has always been a gift. I I consider it a gift to be able to do that, to, you know, how many people are actively living out their passion and are happy with what they're doing. The nuts and bolts of being a historian in terms of the research, though, can be boring sometimes. It can be disappointing in the ways that people treat you in the archives, particularly when you are a visibly Black woman whose name for some of the archivists, doesn't fit your appearance. So my name is Deirdre Cooper Owens. There is nothing about me that is Irish Gaelic or Scottish except for my name. And so, you know, when I was doing this, uh, especially when I started the research for my dissertation that later becomes a book in 2005, and I'm writing all of these archivists and trying to plan trips from L.A. to Alabama or South Carolina or, you know, all points in between, This is before people could Google an image of you. And so I think they saw Deirdre Cooper Owens from UCLA and had an assumption about how I looked and who I was. And so here I come in and everything about me looks very black, very West African. So I think some of them were quite shocked. They were not as helpful. So you're essentially trying to get this information and these people are the gatekeepers. So I have encountered that people are sometimes really upset 
You know, they think that you are writing about a topic that is unimportant or there's not enough information because I'm also writing about enslaved people who typically don't leave written sources because, as you know, it was illegal for them to learn to read and write. That's right. So there's there's also that. And so the archives, the archival experience then wasn't always a kind one. It's very different now because my book has been well received within the academic community. So, of course, now they're like, oh, please come and sit on a board, you know, those kinds of things. But when I was a student, it was tough because you're dealing with a lot of not just racism, but quite frankly, you're dealing with the sexism that comes with those kinds of very patriarchal, very elitist white spaces, white dominated spaces. So the, the joy I got, however, was being able to touch these documents and read the documents and look at them, you know, as we call it, the marginalia or what's written in the pages, you know, on the sides and the margins and be able to extract a story that might have been hidden in a box, you know, for 200 years or 170 years and to be able to make sense of these people's lives through the lens of medicine and race and class and all of those things. So that has been, I think, the best gift And then if I could fast forward, by the time the book is published, the folk who really, and I've always given honor to, to, it was Black doulas originally, who were like, wait, (laughs) you wrote this book? It's about the history of American gynecology and it's linking slavery. Like, I think I knew something about it, but there's a whole book, you know, devoted to this. And so it was really Black doulas who said, you cannot just reside in the ivory tower but we need you to put the pieces of this historical puzzle together for us. And so I was in New York at the time. And so it was people like uh, Chanel of Ancient Song Zula who were some of the first people to do that. Lathan Thomas, and she was, you know, had me featured at a, a conference that she gave. Other folk, when I would be in focus groups, you know, just a Di- Diana Irene Davis. I mean, there were so many people, Akante Dill, who were bringing me into these circles that I realized Black women were especially interested in retelling the stories of our foremothers. Mm, beautiful. And I am so proud of you for holding on through all of this because you're right. Academia, medicine... <laughs> The sciences, all of these things are very patriarchal. And I'm so grateful that you held on. And you're right. You know, the irony of it is that Deirdre Cooper Owens sure doesn't sound like Shamika Jenkins from the stoop, okay? And your your name does not give you away. However, right. how hypocritical are we that Jenny M. Luke and Rebecca Sclote can come in and write about black women and what's mm-hmm. happening? And it's accepted. It's widely received. The door is held open for them. But for you, it was kind of like, well, what are you doing here? And why do you think oh, yeah. this is necessary? <laughs> yeah, I will never forget. In fact, I've just been asked to give a keynote. And, and this is a, a, t- a totally different person. I don't even know if he was employed there at the time. But at the National Library of Medicine. And I go in and I'm excited. And the guy who was over the particular division where I was doing my research and his staff members were excellent. They were really great. And they were just kind of like, hey, we, you know, we're wondering who's taking out all, the, you know, all of these boxes, you know, because this must be an interesting project. So they come, they introduce themselves. Oh, you know, very nice. I was a grad student at the time. And the director sees me, even though I'm not the only person in this, in this space, he sees me going through the box. And I'll never forget, he said, 
oh my God, that's so uncivilized, that's savage, and threw a pair of white gloves at me. Use those if you're going to touch these sources. Ooh. You know, and I'm thinking, now, how intentional was the choice for this man to say savage and mm-hmm. uncivilized? Mm-hmm. You know, and I was literally mm-hmm. the only person who looked like me in that room. Mm. And so those kinds of things happen because grass students don't have power. You know, we don't have a lot of money. And so we're also kind of held within their grasp because these are the people who have the power to bring you the sources. Mm -hmm. So when I was able to gain a platform, and also I work at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm the director of their program in African-American history. Mm -hmm. And it was very important for me to be able to talk to archivists, to talk to our director about archiving while Black or archiving while Brown and the ways that Black people in particular have had these kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. And so I, my only hope is now that, you know, there are platforms where we can talk about these things, that people are not stymied when they're trying to reveal these, these parts of our history that haven't been shared for sometimes over a century or more. That's right. And that leads to my next question, Dr. Cooper Owens. And I love saying that. I love saying Dr. Cooper Owens. (laughs) Thank you. I want to know, I want to know, why is it so important for all of us to know about the medical bondage, Mm -hmm. the race, gender, and origins, origins, keyword origins of American gynecology? Why do we need to know that, Dr. Cooper Owens? Right. Thank you for that. You know what? I think, well, so there are two reasons. I'm going to first start with the academic and then I'll get to, I think, the more symbolic reason. But the the academic reason is, and the intellectual reason is, slavery literally built this country. We all know it. We all know it. Right. And so as a historian of not just medicine, not just women's history, but also slavery, It's important to note that this really valuable economic labor system was linked to almost every industry. And even the industries that we think of as so-called value neutral, they had an intimate relationship with medicine. So it is not hyperbolic for me to say the institution of slavery was intimately linked with the advancement of American medicine, and not just obstetrics or gynecology, but I mean, dentistry, surgeries, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it was just, Mm -hmm. it was linked to it. And so that's important, but also to have folk understand that the unethical exploitation of Black people didn't begin in the 20th century with Tuskegee. It didn't begin with Henrietta Lacks, but that there was a longer history where this country was essentially experimenting on Black people since its colonial past. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to say this is also a part of American history, this explains that it's not Black people's fault when they're reticent to visit hospitals and doctors. They're not superstitious and ignorant. (laughs) Black people have a reason to have some skepticism, but also to know that Black women in the case of obstetrics and gynecology, as much as their bodies were being used against their will, these doctors were also extracting knowledge and labor from them. And so they, they have to be a part of the story. That's the, the interesting thing is, I always tell people, when you read those 18th century and 19th century memoirs or medical journal articles, those white men 
those white medical men never had an issue essentially stating that black people were a part of this process. But it was literally after slavery ends that you start to get editors and authors and physicians who are now erasing the black participation. And I mean, whether that's forced participation or black people actively taking a role in their healing, they're now being erased from the historical record. And I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, that's, that's revisionist history. All right. What I'm trying to do is show that we were there. The symbolic and the kind of practical reason why this story is important for people to know, it also teaches a lesson to academic publishing houses and publishing houses kind of broadly. There was this belief that, oh, black people, you know, Americans, let me take this, Americans aren't really interested in this kind of history. Mm. If it's not about the Civil War, or it's not about, you know, some famous person, you know, Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, people aren't interested. And so with my book, I remember there was not, I had a black editor at the time, the highest ranking black editor in the academic mm. publishing trade. All right. So I was, yeah, I was very intentional to work with Walter Biggins. And initially, before the book won awards, and you know, you're just kind of trying to push it, there was not a huge push. I think they just thought, eh, you know, she'll sell the average, which is about three to 400 copies. That's like the average kind of lifespan of a, a typical academic book. And I remember after a few months, I was like, I'm not getting any PR. So I, I remember I emailed the guy like, hey, I'm out here selling this book like sold crack and CDs in the 80s. Mm. Like, yeah, I need, some, I need some support. And so he, you know, he's like, okay, I promise I'll call. And I'll never forget, I was in my apartment in New York at the time on a Saturday and talking to this guy in marketing, like, look, I need some support. And I'm the one generating these talks and getting mm. these interviews at radio stations. And, and thank goodness to social media, black women and men were also saying, sis, can you be on this radio show? Hey, can you do this podcast? Hey, we want you to speak at this event or this community center. So I'm like, community folk are doing this. I need y'all to stand behind me. Mm. And then the book started to do well. Okay. And so now it's, in fact, next month will be four years since the launch of this book. And it has been either number one or two in the press. It has sold over 12,000 copies. That's nice. not even counting the international sales, which I don't nice. know those numbers yet. But it is one of the best-selling books. And then it garnered an award for my Black editor. And he was able to get an even better job Aww. because this was his first award-winning book. So it also sends a message Black people are book, like, A, we buy books, we read them, but we're also interested in our history. Yeah, We are, we're the focus. Hmm. Wow. This is, this is, this is wonderful. This is amazing. I'm sitting here taking notes. I'm like, oh my God, this and, is so true. Yeah. <laughs> and the wonderful thing is, I have to say, the University of Georgia Press, who has been wonderful since then, but they just hired two Black women editors that never happens. And one of them I know quite well. And, and I remember saying, I saw the way that they supported your book, but also the numbers. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of the organization. So whenever you see that there's not just kind of academic support, but that there are, you know, I mean, all kinds of birth workers, healthcare workers, schools, organizations are interested in understanding the full story then the press can make structural changes about mm -hmm. who's at the table. Mm -hmm. And that's been really great. Wonderful. Unforeseeable, but at the same time, mm -hmm. a wonderful event that's happened. 
Dr. Cooper Owens, I want to ask you, why is it important to have education in childbirth? Why is that so important, especially for black and brown people, our people? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. I do a lot of, I, I didn't know the ground rounds for OBGYN departments and hospitals <laughs> happen at 7 a.m. and I'm on Central Standard Time. So I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So, but I've done a lot of grand rounds. I've also done some consultancy work with a lot of organizations. And then, you know, nowadays DEI is kind of the thing. So I do a lot of like educational and learning modules mm-hmm. for, for different institutions. And when DEI, I, Dr. Cooper Owens, just to have our listeners understand, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion, correct? Inclusion, yes. yes. Thank okay. you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I do a lot of that kind of work as well. And it's almost always based on education, development, or, or design, or even the, the kind of transforming of a syllabus a curriculum that's in place that is not, let's just say, it doesn't lend itself to understanding race, racism, social justice issues. So what I'm finding and what I've had to kind of hold people to the fire, it's not that the education doesn't exist, because it does. It's, it's two things. A, historians of medicine, and they're typically either PhDs or MD-PhDs. We've been talking in a vacuum. And so we'll go to our conferences And then we don't share the information outside of that very small space. Mm. Because this field is becoming a little bit more democratized, so you're having more women, more black folk, brown folk, um, indigenous people, Asian, Asian Asian-American, Latinx, who are joining in, you know, queer people, we're finally saying, no, 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 (laughs) we have to to teach people outside of conference spaces and classrooms. And so we do a lot of stuff on social media, you know, podcasts, interviews, those kinds of things. The other thing, though, that I think is equally important around education is that the information has remained the same in terms of stating things that we all know, right? So the listeners and members of Amaz International, we know this. Human beings are 99.9% similar. That race is not a biological construct. Right. So, for instance, I can give someone in Cambodia my heart if they needed a heart transplant and certain things matched. Right. right. So we know that the issue is and this is where I have to be real frank and transparent. A lot of white medical students, nursing students, even midwives are coming into schools and programs and they understand the facts based on what they've been taught for decades, but they willfully choose to believe in anti-blackness or fill in in the blank for whatever group is appropriate. Mm. So what that means is when the data is showing us that black women and birthing people continue to suffer complications and or die during pregnancy or childbirth, not because of race, but because of anti-blackness, that means you're willfully choosing to not believe that race is not biologically rooted or based. You're willfully choosing to believe that Black people experience literally human physiological experiences differently than white folks. That's a choice. So when I bring up information from the 21st century, and so many people have now cited this source, she's now a doctor, but a Dr. Hoffman at the University of Virginia. When she was a PhD student in the Department of Psychology, she did a sample 
of almost 300 medical residents in some faculty. And she found, and she conducted the research in 2014, that overwhelmingly, almost 70% of those residents believed black and white people were biologically different, black people didn't experience pain, didn't matter whether it was pregnancy or kidney stones, things that are, you know, that can, that can create pain, right? As you're going through those experiences, they believe black people didn't experience pain or not the same amount of pain. They believe black people aged faster. They believe black people had thicker skin and two of the, the folks sampled believe black people were born with tails. Now, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Virginia. And I can tell you, this university is essentially an Ivy League school. It was founded in the 1700s by Thomas Jefferson, has a multi-billion dollar endowment. So these are not students who aren't coming, you know, they're coming from Fox Swamp, you know, university. They're coming to one of the most competitive, highly ranked medical universities in the country, if not the world. And they're coming in and stewing all the knowledge that they've learned in, in their classes, where they've earned their bachelor's degrees, believing these racial fictions about black people and white people. And so this is the kind of thing that you're up against, people who are willfully choosing anti-blackness at every turn. Now, that is an eye-opener for me, because all this time I'm over here Beating the, beating the everything, <laughs> beating everything, going everywhere, talking about racism, racism. There is another construct out here and it is called anti-blackness. Yes, right. Yeah. I, 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 can you expound a little bit more on that? Because that is what I'm experiencing as a black certified doula going into these births. Mm-hmm. That's what that yeah. is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the example that I means where people... You know, on paper, they could tell you, sure, of course, race is a construct, right? They can tell you that, but it's the ways in which they act against that fact, right? Mm-hmm. Act against that thing that they know. And it's largely based on the socialization of this country. So even before it becomes the United States in the 1780s, right? After the American Revolutionary War ends and there's a creation of the United States, a lot of the laws that were created were essentially based on anti-Blackness. So when I teach students and we have to look at primary sources, and I'm always so thankful for primary sources because lest someone say I am making this up or or my interpretation of my students, let's look at this source. So I often go to, it's a a source by Robert Beverly. He was British born, moves to, uh, immigrates to the colony of Virginia. And he becomes a lawmaker. And so in order for Beverly to attract more immigrants to the colony of Virginia, he has to address some fears that white people in England have, and rightly so. So they're hearing in England, wait, when you go to the the colony of Virginia, white indentured servants are treated just like Negro slaves. There's no difference. So he has to essentially persuade them that this isn't true. And so he creates a document written for white English, you know, people in England. So the white English citizens, he says, the difference between servants and slaves. And so servants becomes a synonym for white people. And literally in that first introduction, he says, slaves are Negroes. And it is a a status that is for life including their posterity, but this is where the gender piece comes in. All of a sudden, black women are now 
passing on their status as slaves to their children. Mm. He also, he dictates the kind of work that is done. And he essentially says, so indentured servants do this kind of thing. Negro slaves do this kind of thing. And then he says, white women, white ladies are not to till the earth. It is meant for men. So that it doesn't matter if you're indigenous, black or white, and Negro females. So when you literally have laws like this, edicts that come out about, you know, that essentially turns English, you know, or British law on its head, children were supposed to always inherit the condition of the father. But guess what happens with slavery? Oh, yes. If it becomes if you're pregnant, a black woman, they don't care who the father is, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the thing. The fathers were oftentimes white men. That's right. So, yeah, who were slave owners. So all of a sudden, I'm going to rearrange English law that existed for well over a thousand years and now make black women the ones who pass on the condition of slavery to their children. So when you literally have that as the standard for anti-blackness, how do you get rid of that when that has been in circulation for centuries? It's older than even American democracy that was only established in the 1780s. That is that is something that I never had clarification on. And that transpires and goes right into the labor and delivery room for that black mom. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it, it goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's regarded as less than she's regarded as this this thing that's giving an inheritance of slavery and servitude and less than and devalued. How powerful yeah. is that? That's yeah, very powerful. Yeah. Yep. It's everything from sharing with my students when, you know, we think about what's passed on to to black children right as they're being born. You know, I often have my students and I, I now I'm living in Nebraska and I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, that on a good day, the black population might hit six <laughs> percent between four to six percent. So, okay. You know, you and I could you, you and I could be in a space and we might double or quadruple the population. Right? Wow. So I, I will have my students who they've grown up in, you know, kind of racially homogenous environments, you know, just because of the nature of the demographic. And so they're also young. So I say, how many of you have heard of crack babies? And some have, some have not, because these are, are young people born in the 2000s. Right. And so I said, hey, you know, so this is kind of what it was. I lay it out. And then I have them, once again, I go to a primary source document. And I said, I want you to... Read this four-page article I said that came out of the New England Journal of Medicine by Ira Chesnoff and his research team. And it talks about cocaine use amongst pregnant women. This is 1985. Mm -hmm. So they read it and they see in the first article that was ever published by Chernoff and his team, it doesn't state race. You just know that there are 23 women. We later find out it's a multiracial group. Well, guess what happens? A mainstream journalist discovers that article and all of a sudden they're not pregnant women who use cocaine or other, you know, other narcotics or or substances. All of a sudden, this mainstream journalist says, oh, my gosh, black women are crack users and they are producing crack babies. And now it becomes this huge thing where you then have members of Congress. These babies will represent the most expensive financial challenge and burden on the American economy and American history. And I'm like, wait, did we not forget slavery? Where people had price tags on their head. And I often tell my students, now pin that. I said, so let's go to the Nick Yule Ward in the 21st century. 
And I said, now I'm going to ask you, because I said, y'all love to Google when I'm teaching to see if I'm saying something right or wrong. I need you to find data that shows me, I said, the stats on the quote unquote wimpy white boy syndrome. So they're like, what is that? I said, just Google it. So they're looking and then they're like, I don't really see a lot of stats, but there are some articles written about it. I said, well, let me share what that is. I said, essentially, there's this belief by doctors, by nurses in the NICU who serve and treat premature babies. So these premature babies are born low birth weight with all the attendant conditions of premature birth. And there's a belief that white male newborn infants have less of a chance of survival than white girls, black boys, black girls. So there's more medical intervention done to save their lives. But when you start to really look at the stats, the reason that these babies are saved is because there's more intervention being done to address the symptoms that come along within the challenges with being born early and being low birth weight. The black male newborn infants that are thought to just be stronger actually fare worse and have higher rates of morbidity. So I said, the thing is for me though, when this white, this wimpy white boy syndrome came out, nobody blamed the mothers. Nobody ever said, what's creating these premature births with these white women? Are they on drugs? Are they too fat? Are they, you know, X, Y, Z. So the line of inquiry is not rooted in blame. It's not rooted in a pathology or a criminality. Whereas this uh, reporter, he reads this article that has nothing to do with race. And automatically, he sees these pregnant women as black. And all of a sudden, they produce these crack super babies, right, that are going to essentially topple the country financially. And then 20 years later, we find out that, in fact, there's no such thing as a crack baby. Everything they were saying wasn't, in fact, factual at all. And even Chesnoff apologized. He was like, I gave too many interviews. People took my words out of context. I kept saying there was more research that needed to be done. And in fact, the crack baby phenomenon was essentially a fallacy created because people wanted to believe, right? And they chose to believe in Black pathology and abnormality. And so those are the things that I I teach. And you can see they're, they're like, oh my gosh, I get it now. I was like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, imagine wow. if all babies, all birthing people, all all mothers were treated in the same ways as these medical workers who were working to save the lives of the quote unquote wimpy white boys who were mm. born. Imagine if everybody was just treated the same. Imagine. I that is something I would love to see because as a birth doula, as a black woman, I do see the differential treatment. I definitely do see that. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Cooper Owens, I want to pull back for a minute and go to Montgomery, Alabama. I want to go to Dr. Marion J. Sims and Uh Anarka and Uh Lucy and Betsy. He was treating, as a physician, he was treating vaginal fistulas. Now, I know that you put on those same white gloves that were thrown at you and you dug in those archive boxes and you actually touched and had interaction with Dr. Marion J. Sims's notes, correct? I did. Mm-hmm. What was that like? You know, so this is the interesting thing. I have to say, when I was doing it, conducting this research, I was first interested in exploring this topic because of a book I read by Janetta Cole and Beverly Guy Sheftel. And it's called Gender Talk. 
And they're two Black women scholars. Beverly Guy Shuffle is one of the architects of Black womanist scholarship. And so in the, in Gender Talk, there were two sentences that spoke about this guy who I'd never heard of before, James Marion Sims. And he was known as the father of American gynecology. Mm-hmm. But also what was more interesting to me was Sims' connection to slave experimental medicine. So I was like, what? Because I had only heard of Tuskegee. So I was like, oh my gosh, you got to find this out. So I went to Alabama, a couple of other places, even read a first edition of his memoir, all of those kinds of things. What I realized is America's really good at this. We love to deem people the father or the mother. And we act as if these people existed in a vacuum. What I found, though, Sims, and I've said this even to members of the James Marion Sims Society in Charleston, South Carolina, they get really upset when I'm like, Sims actually wasn't that exceptional. He wasn't that spectacular. And he certainly wasn't the first. And that's when people are like, what? I said, if Sims was good at something, and don't get me wrong, he did create the surgical reparative method, right? Which was the silver suture method. So he did, he did create that reparative method to suture up the tears that these safe women experienced. But Sims didn't, A, he did not create the medical branch known as gynecology. People were being taught this in medical schools well before Sims even entered med school. And also what Sims was doing had been done before and actually written about before. In fact, in the same journal that he published. So as I was conducting research, I I never, it was interesting. Sims never became a savior in my mind and he wasn't the historical boogeyman that people make him out to be. And so that's been kind of the frustrating part, I think for me trying to tell this message that for a lot of folks, people want to portray Sims as a kind of devil or butcher. And I have to explain what Sims was doing. He had been taught the set of beliefs or the ideologies around Black people, and in particular, Black women, had already been circulating. All he had to do was just exist in the moment in order for him to inherit it. So what does that mean? People will say, well, he didn't give them anesthesia. And I'm like, guess what? Sims wouldn't have given a white woman anesthesia during that time period because it wasn't commonly used. Mm. And also surgeons, especially during the 1840s, and it didn't matter if you were white, black, a man, a woman, you know, who was on the surgical table, all patients were restrained because A, surgeries happened when people were conscious. And number two, it just, because there's no branch of medicine called anesthesiology at that time, a surgeon measures his and I'm using his very intentionally because surgeons were men in terms of the written record. Surgeons measure their worth and their expertise by how short a surgery happens. And obviously, if the, if the patient lives. So a patient has to be conscious in order for a doctor or a surgeon to know that the person's still alive. So that means they have to make noise, they're wriggling. And that's why you typically had two surgical assistants who would hold down the patient's. On the table. Wow. So when I tell people that, I think, especially for a lot of black women in particular who would hear that, they're like, but he was still a monster. And I was like, y'all, if we implicate Sims, we're going to have to implicate them all. Right. Because Sims wasn't doing anything different. And so they're like, but he gave them opium. I was like, yeah, because he sutured up women in their genitalia. And if you had a bowel movement or even you urinated, it could tear open the stitches. Mm-hmm. Opium creates constipation. Most 19th century doctors did that. So once I start to explain the 19th century world, 
it somehow, I think in some folks' mind, they think that I'm defending him. And I'm like, no, no, no. We can actually look at the 19th century record and what would have been an ethical no-no back then. I said, if you actually look at the record, you'll see that one of the enslaved women, we don't know who, because we only, we only know the names of three of them. We don't know the names of all eight or nine of the women that he, he leased out. One of them gave birth to a quote-unquote mulatto child. Mm. And in the 19th century, interracial sex was, was illegal, even though we knew what happened. But it was also illicit. And that means that Sims, either he or some white man, had access to this enslaved woman's body while she was undergoing experimental surgeries to repair a fistula or a hole. That person had access to her body, impregnated her, and out of the 17 enslaved people that he either leased or owned, this woman was the only one to give birth to a child who was so markedly different in appearance than all the other enslaved people that the census listed this child as mulatto. And I'm like, trust me, that is a huge ethical red flag that would have garnered attention during the 19th century in Alabama. And that was the thing that really made me um, look at Sims's unethical treatment in an even different light. Like, dude, if you were, if you were really about quote unquote saving these women, or he would say fixing these women, how in the hell do you allow this enslaved woman to get impregnated? Like, how does this happen under your watch in your hospital? Wow, that's powerful. And that's something I did not know. And you're right. You're right. Dr. J. Sims was acting and working according to the times that he himself lived in. That was his culture of the day. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. That was it. Him and you know we talk about Ina Mae Gaskin being racist. Well, yeah. th- this is what they lived in. That's, if that's if they right. would have done anything differently, we would have been looking at them like they're weird and crazy. Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing too. I often have to remind people in the South. In the South, abolitionism was illegal. Yes. In the South, racial equality was it's illegal. illegal. Yes. <laughs> so, Sim. Literally, and let, let us just imagine some alternate world where this man could have been those things. He couldn't have done those, any of those things in the South. So even when he creates the hospital in, in New York that services both, you know, mainly white patients, but some black patients as well, he, that could not have existed in the South. No, no. And that's the women's hospital. That's the first hospital here in New York. In New York. But and the first one was actually that slave hospital in Alabama. And I make that very clear. Yes, yes. So that was Mm -hmm. the first here in the North that Dr. Sims Mm -hmm. did. And it was a woman's hospital. It has since been closed now for over 20 years. It's been closed for a very, very long time. Here in New York, we just got rid of his edifice, his statue here on Fifth Avenue. They put it actually in a cemetery. (laughs) But, you know, these men are a reflection of the times that they lived in. So you're absolutely right. He would not have been able to practice medicine if he was breaking the law by being diverse, equal, and inclusive. (laughs) No, yeah, he, that's the whole thing. You know, I'm like, what do I think in terms of who he, like reading about his personality, absolutely found him detestable. Right. You know, I mean, the, the patients, this is the thing. He had more of an investment in actually repairing black women's bodies as opposed to the poor Irish immigrant women that he worked on in New York, largely because not because he was some benevolent man who loved these enslaved women, he, you know, he could care less. 
But when you are leasing, quote unquote, property, even human property, yep, that means you make a financial promise to these women's owners that you will not harm their property or damage the property because then there's a financial compensation he would have to pay. Mm. And so that's because of the value of enslaved people as chattel property. So there were some folk who would defend them, who would say, oh, but he he took on these great costs. I was like, oh, this man was leasing out property. That's what he was supposed to do by the letter of the law. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, it's like me leasing a car. I can't, you know, I can't ding it up and, and mess up the engine because then I'm financially responsible that's for right. the company that leased it to me. That's because right. Because I don't ultimately own it. That's and right. So it's the same thing with Sims. I mean, Sims, by the time he goes to New York, and he's no longer in the, the quote-unquote slave south, the way he literally discards of, like, the poor immigrant women, it was disgusting. Mm. And this way that he kind of talks about himself, you know, with grander than the most, he, he just, like, on a personal level, I find him detestable. The ways that he literally, let, like I said, either he impregnated the enslaved woman or some white man could have impregnated her but the fact that he would allow that to happen, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. was just in, it was just disgusting for me. So Sims, that's why in the first chapter of my book, I literally laid out a kind of intellectual genealogy. I'm like, look, y'all, he wasn't the first. Right. And look, right. He is acting in accordance with exactly what had been shaped in, in the Western medical practice since the 18th century in Europe and then what becomes the United States. He is literally acting in concert with those ideals. Mm. And so that's why I think, you know, a large part of this has been Sims kind of becoming the historical boogeyman. And I'm like, and I get it. Like, I, you know, I'm not mad at anybody who wants to honor black women. That is important. I'm here for it. But structurally, if we're going to talk about things systemically and structurally, does it do us a service to necessarily focus on Sims? when the structure of this medically racist institution still exists and all of the players literally put up, like they played a part in creating this monster that we now have to tackle and deal with in the 21st century. And Sims was a cog in a wheel, Mm. right? I mean, there are so many others that I named in my book from Ephraim McDowell to, um, I mean, just yeah, Joseph Matower and, Francois Provost, mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many of them who were doing some really horribly heinous things or just acting, once again, in the interest of the slave economy and Black people and Black women in particular and Black communities and families are the ones who have to bear the brunt of that exploitative behavior. Yes, and yes. And, you know, that comes back to today. You know, here we are, present day, many, many modern science advances, everything from cloning to advanced techniques. And in the middle of all of this, Black women are still dying as well as their babies. Yeah. And you have to wonder, where is that coming from? And and I'm learning about anti-Blackness. And it makes perfectly good sense on why this is so pervasive that a doctor can say, no, I'm not racist. I'm just anti-Black. <laughs> mm-hmm. And wow, that's a new scope. That's a new lens Dr. Cooper Owens that I have to look through. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's the other thing too, you know, who who wants to be 
called out for this, you know, and it's, I think um, sometimes I'll share, especially when I'm talking to doctors in particular, not even, not nurses so much because people, they treat nurses horribly because, you know, nurses have primarily been women since the late 19th century to the present. And so they're just treated poorly anyway. And doctors are kind of vaulted. But what I've noticed too, in the ways that people have been asking medical practitioners to turn the mirror to themselves and to be reflective, a lot of a lot of doctors in particular don't want to contend with being thought of poorly. And I'm like, look, y'all, I'm a I'm a historian, I'm an academic who works at the university. And so I said, we have been literally assaulted, like the liberal leftist elite academics. <laughs> I was like, and some of that is true, some of it isn't, mm. but there still needed to be a reckoning that needed to happen mm-hmm. so that we could be held accountable for the things that were going on. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing with medical practitioners. Okay, that might hurt your feelings, but is it factual? Like, is it factual? What do the stats say? Why have the percentages remained unchanged in terms of the United States being the most dangerous place for Black women and birthing people to give birth, Mm -hmm. not just to become pregnant, but to also give birth in the quote-unquote high-income-earning countries? Like, that should be an embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. People are still Mm -hmm. choosing medical racism. They're still choosing to be elitist and classist and sexist. And they're still victim blaming and acting like it's black women's weight, you know, or, right, or right. their their desire to not want to go to the hospitals. But I know you have dealt with it. You know, you're on the front lines. I have had conversations with people. But this black lactation specialist in um, Southern California, I will never forget this. She literally had to advocate. I mean, almost to the point where she was like, I wanted to fight this woman, a white nurse refused to loan out a breast pump to a teenage mother because her assumption was the young girl would steal it. Wow. And she's like, okay, you know, this is a teenager. Most teenagers don't have independent incomes. So she says she can't just go out and buy the breast pump. She doesn't have the money. So you're telling me you refuse to rent, well, not even rent, loan her the breast pump, which is which you were supposed to do for that particular hospital system Mm. because you think she's going to steal. In fact, she hasn't stolen it, but you think she's going to steal it. Right, right, right. I mean, those kinds of things. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is something that's real and present day. We can't think that this is just history as Dr. Cooper Owens is giving us wonderful examples, listeners, This is present day and it goes all the way back before America was even formed. That's how long Uh these tentacles stretch and the damage with, you know, epigenetic inheritance and the Uh impact on black mothers and babies, NICU babies, low weight babies, preterm babies, high risk pregnancies and black women just being afraid to get pregnant and give birth also attacks the race of people. So I just want to thank you once again, Dr. Cooper Owens, how powerful this is. Can you just tell the listeners how they can reach you and where they can find your book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, written by Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they can find me on Twitter at Dr. Cooper Owens. And on IG, my name, Deirdre Cooper Owens. So that's uh, D-E-I-R-D-R-E Cooper Owens. You can visit my website, 
www.dedrickcooperowens.com. And then I have an author page on Facebook, which is my name again, Dedrick Cooper Owens. But you know what? You can find Medical Bondage on Amazon. If you don't want to support Amazon, because <laughs> I mean, they kind of control everything. You can also just go to independent black bookstores online. If you Google, and this is something that has been very helpful when I do programs, if you just Google key terms, Oprah Black Bookstore, Oprah Winfrey's uh, webpage, they created a link to all Black-owned bookstores in the United States. So you can go there, request it from a Black bookstore uh, in, in your neighborhood. That was, I think that's important in terms of supporting these businesses. Or you can go to the University of Georgia Press and just request a copy of my book medical bondage. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I do want to be a little nosy. Do you have another book on the horizon? I do. I do. It Mm. is. So I, you know, I couldn't necessarily leave uh, reproductive medicine or black women alone. Um, (laughs) But I'm staying true to to the 19th century. It's actually a book on Harriet Tubman. And I'm looking at Harriet Tubman through the lens of medicine and disability, but also more broadly thinking about her as someone who reshaped the contours of American freedom and democracy. Oh, right. But I want to, I want to be able to talk about the ways her so-called disabilities informed her freedom fighting and that one of them might have been infertility. Harriet okay. Tubman was 27 when she attempted to run away for the first time. She was married. She had been married since she was 21. Hmm. It was highly unlikely for an enslaved married woman to not have given birth between 21 and 27. Okay. And she never gave birth, although she did adopt a daughter later on in life with her second husband. And so I I think it's an interesting question to be able to think about the ways that possibly infertile enslaved woman thought about her value and how other people deemed her as valuable or not, depending upon whether she could, and I hate this 19th century term, but it existed, whether she could breed or not. All right. Um, whether she could give birth. So that's the next project. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Dr. Cooper Owens, I can't thank you enough for this wonderful opportunity to spend some time with you and to learn at your feet and to just take in this wonderful work you've been called to do. I will be calling on you again in the future for sure, because I just love the work that you're doing and the way you present it and You've worked hard for this, and I just want to be a part of it. (laughs) So thank you, thank you, thank you. So thank you so very much for being here with me this afternoon. And Lamaze International listeners, you have had a wonderful treat. I'm Denise Bowles. I'm your podcast host for this round. This is my first round here, and we're going to have some more. So stay tuned. Keep looking for me here on Lamaze International's podcast. Dr. Cooper Owens, thanks once again, and you take care. Thank you. Same to you and your listeners.